Welcome back, everybody. Uh, this time we didn't take three months. It's been more like two weeks. So, first return guest, Tim Johnson. I'm that popular, I guess. Yep, Real T1 Group. Uh, and then our new guest for today is Nick Carlisle from Market One Realty. This is my voice. <laughs> uh, since you guys have been introduced to Tim before, we're going to start with Nick, kind of dig into his life, hopefully get his social security number, some bank accounts, stuff like that. So um, got plenty. the real personal stuff. Uh, so we'll start with just what are you doing right now as far as in the real estate industry, and then we'll kind of back it up, how you got into it, what kind of led you down this dark, dangerous road. I've been doing uh, residential real estate for about, going on eight years now. Uh, I did not choose it, it chose me. I was a server at Olive Garden, and some guy came in to eat at my table. Turns out he was a real estate recruiter for a company, uh, liked my personality and the way I connected with him and basically gave me a job offer right there. Um, so I went and did phone sales for a real estate company for almost three years. Um, just kind of cut my teeth doing 60 to 80 dials a day, setting appointments for other agents. After about six months of that, they liked me enough. I had good enough numbers. They paid for me to go to real estate school and paid for my first year of licensing and then threw a couple deals my way. So that's how I kind of got a taste of it. I saw the success that they were having and decided from there that I was going to kind of give it a shot on my own uh, when an opportunity with uh, a team that came on, the actual team that, that Tim's on right now, to kind of get a jump start for a couple of years. And then recently in August, I took a, a bigger leap of faith with no team and no support and also less splits to kind of go out on my own. So still doing mainly residential the last year have kind of dipped my toe in with Tim here to the investment world, uh, working with investor clients and doing some one completed and one on the way flip ourselves. So it's kind of where we're at right now. Nice. So when you started with the call center, you're doing, you said 80 calls. Yeah, 60 was the minimum dials per okay. day that I had to make with the goal of setting at least two appointments a day. So you'd set an appointment for, for, a, for a licensed agent to meet a new client, typically off of uh, some sort of landing page or Zillow leads, um, whatever we were trying out at the time. Okay, nice. Super cool. All right, jumping into the flip a little bit. We talked about it last time. We were, you guys were in the process of it. I got to work on it a little bit, doing some door work for you guys, interior doors. So, um, I'd love to talk about like, I did construction remodels for just under four years. So I got to see kind of the details behind the scene. And then I'm assuming you guys walked into some fun stuff for your first one. So I'd love to get into kind of what you guys experienced along the way, what you learned along the way, or are still learning with going into your second one. A great example, just to set the tone for how that whole project went, was day one, we brought what was at the time my new broker in who had about 10 year experience flipping homes. Uh, so we had just closed that day and brought him in to kind of say, hey, what do you think? What kind of a vision should we have? Here's what we're thinking. Here's some comps. And he just kind of looked at us as like, why aren't you starting demo right now? So like, get it. it's closing day. You guys got to be starting. <laughs> And we didn't have plans, we didn't have a set vision, we didn't have guys on board, and we were getting hard money on all this thing, so we're just burning through cash the first two weeks, trying to play catch-up, basically, where we were just like, well, I thought we had to close first. Like, no, 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 no. Um, so that kind of set the tone for the whole thing, where uh, we would have been a lot better off if we were thinking, like, two weeks ahead, as opposed to, like, just in the moment trying to solve the problem that continued to kind of come back around, I think. Yeah, I think it was like every job we would finish it and then be like, all right, what's next? Who should we contact to get the next guy in here? <laughs> It'd be like, a, well, I'm booked out for another week, so what do we do? We just kind of sit here and wait. Um, or even spend time chasing the cheapest quote down, but we'd spend a week and a half getting quotes from guys, trying to pick the one that we wanted to work with when, you know, with a hard money loan, we were burning $91 every single day. So we wasted 
10 days, so $900 picking the cheapest bid <laughs> when we would have saved money if we just picked the first guy and the job would have gotten done. So, all right, and then just for a hard money bid, that's is that a construction loan or is that uh, with a term on it? Yeah, so uh, hard money loan is a weird term that I don't know where it comes from, but basically the goal is to give a short term loan typically to somebody who's trying to do some sort of an investment thing with a property. So the specific structure for a fix and flip is they give you a loan up front for the purchase price, anywhere from 10 to whatever you want to put down um, with a pretty high interest rate, usually 10 to 15% interest rate, much higher than a mortgage. And then a certain percentage of your rehab budget they'll also lend to you. So they do a very short underwriting process ahead of time to make sure you're not taking on something you shouldn't and your numbers kind of make sense to see if they'll get paid back. Um, and then I think on that project, we had 80% we could take out for the rehab and the rest was fronted by the private investor that, that purchased the property. So with the higher interest rates and borrowing the purchase price and the rehab budget, which ended up being over $100,000, that adds up pretty quick, which is why every single day, even on weekends, we're spending almost $100 just basically in interest. That's insane. So how much of it did you guys do yourselves and how much of it did you have to sub out? I think it's a good opportunity for the mindset we tried to say going in. <laughs> yeah. So going into the project, we were like, you know what? We want to set the precedence that we are looking for scalability with this. So that being said, I was just coming off my own home renovation where I did everything, um, almost everything anyway. And so the natural inclination was like, oh, I know how to do that. I just did that. So like, maybe I can do it here. And, um, but we set the precedence pretty early of just being able to scale it. So we wanted to hire everything out. Um, that worked up until like a certain point. And I think right at the end, just to try and fit timeline stuff in, I ended up jumping in and like finishing with the help of a family member to just kind of like finish up cleaning, just like some fixture stuff, just yeah. kind of the end touches to get everything ready to go before we stage the property, um, which in in turn, I think moving forward, that would just be like, you know, subbed out to someone else. But yeah, so the, the goal was to find a way that we could replicate this and scale it to multiple projects at one time. And obviously we can't do multiple projects at one time ourselves and also work real estate, so. Right, how fast did you guys turn it around? Uh, it took about five months from the day we went under contract to the day that it was like sold and closed. So our project time on it was about four months. Um, and I think in hindsight, we could have trimmed about a month off of that timeline pretty easily. Um, to circle back to how much we did ourselves so many times, even day two, I think Tim is like, can I just go over there with a sledgehammer and just start demo man? Like, can we just get it going? Like, I mean, we can, but there's so much to do and you don't have time. We need to find like the guys so we have the guys moving forward and you can't always be the guy. We talk about scalability, but we didn't have any guys for anything picked out yet. We had numbers and we had guys who knew other guys, but yep. we found our demo guys on Craigslist, right? <laughs> yeah, we, we did, we did. So After a few calls, too, right. like, it was like the third one down. I had to... And they ended up being great, but they were a little bit expensive and we started later than we should have and all that. So um, that's a big change we've seen going into our current project where we already have the guys and typically we have redundancy on that as well. So if some guys booked out or unavailable or doesn't want the job, we have another guy we can go to um, that's already teed up. So we don't have this almost interview process for every single job to, to really try to trim that timeline up because that ate into a huge amount um, of just the profit at the end of that deal. Yeah. So you guys, you guys are obviously acting basically as superintendent then for your own project or <clears throat> site manager, whatever you want to call it. Not on paper, but yes. Okay, so who carries that on paper? So uh, our architect is a licensed general contractor. Okay. And gives us a screaming deal. We just pay him a flat fee to hang his GC license over the project. Um, luckily with that one, he really only offered it because it's down the street from his office. So he'd swing in every two weeks and kind of check on stuff. Everything still had to go through permits yep. and all that. But yeah, we were able to sub out everything it had to be at a certain level. Um, so yeah, we were acting superintendents basically because we were scheduling out every job, interviewing every guy, and I think unwisely we were the authority on is that work good or bad, 
because we again didn't really know what that looked like yep um, and we got schooled a little bit on that at the end uh, by one of our workers who was super solid that just came in and he's like hey i want to do a walkthrough with you and kind of show you stuff that was missed because you guys really shouldn't be the guys doing that <laughs> so fair enough he did it i think he did it really well yeah so kind of taking that back then you guys decide hey we're going to let's I want to take it all the way back before, instead of keep back tracking. So why the partnership? But as far as people will talk about a lot of times with business, like if you get into business with someone, you might as well think of it as a marriage because it's going to get nasty at some point and you're going to have, you've got two people, usually two opposing views and it gets rough. There's certain companies where you've got partners and it's that way. And if they didn't have the other person, it would crumble to the ground. So it's kind of, that kind of brings the question as far as why didn't one of you go and say, Hey, this is the direction I'm going. I'm hard charging this by myself. And how do you guys kind of bring your two strengths to the table? I'm curious your perspective as to how we kind of decided to work together on something like this. Um, sometimes I still ask myself, like, <laughs> why is it beneficial for us to do stuff? basically the job of one person together um, is really what it comes down to true um but i, I do think <clears throat> in order to get our feet wet that's kind of obviously what it took i think um with with the ability to come in um basically convince an investor to uh give us money to manage a project for them and give them a return on that um coming from with a because we have no experience uh, at least now we have two people with no experience is really what it came down to. And so like with the first project, Nick and I went in there with really flexible roles and cause we didn't know what we wanted each other to take on. We, we didn't know how much we could take on. We didn't know, you know, a lot of things. Um, and so a lot of it was just kind of, we're rolling with it and taking the punches as they come. And then, um, you know, just kind of being really communicative about, you know, hey, I just did this. I just called this person. We've got them scheduled. So we kind of divided tasks in a way. Um, but also, like, I feel like, and Nick, you can kind of speak to this, maybe what roles we kind of almost naturally took on throughout the project, too, mm -hmm. and kind of figured out how to smooth things out. So I don't think either of us would have pursued this project without the other person. Um, Tim is really well versed, at least on the intellectual level, of investments and has researched and soaked that stuff in for years, just for personal development and goals. And I had basically no experience or even desire to pursue any kind of investments within real estate, was really drilled down and focused on residential, um, which is going really well at the time, so I didn't really feel like I needed to do that. Um, but then I had a friend who connected me to what ended up being our private investor as like, hey, you guys have similar real estate interests, he's working on getting his license, you should just connect and talk about this. And we had some other personal connections as well. Um, and so we just got on a Zoom one day because it's the middle of COVID and just kind of really connected. Ended up talking about some goals and some of them aligned a little bit. I said, hey, we should get on another call with my buddy Tim and just kind of like talk about stuff because the investor was also very well versed in real estate investing, actively pursuing different projects ways to invest, some out of state, just like all over the map, didn't know what he wanted to do, but had kind of this chunk of money that he was pretty willing to do something with. So we got a call together and he kind of ended the call with like, hey, if you guys like found a flip and it was like a home run, like I'd be pretty interested. I was like, green light, baby, let's go. <laughs> this is where Nick really just like started sending homes like all the time. Two like, days later, oh. when I found this home, I just posted, we're gonna go walk it this afternoon. I think it's a good opportunity. Um, barely squeezed in and landed it. We had a ton of competing investors on that um, and just got like just super lucky on that for sure. Um, but the only reason I was confident enough to pursue it is I had a lot of real estate experience specifically. And the company that I cut my teeth on with the phone sales was about a 50% investment firm. The two owners, the principals, did personal fix and flips and they would do about a dozen a year. So I kind of got a high level background view of what it looked like, at least from the office. I would walk some projects with them. I never really got to see the numbers, but I got to see how successful it could be really. Um, so with an opportunity like that, just kind of put in front of me that people do not get 
um, I felt like we just had to take a shot at it. Um, and I felt more comfortable about it because I knew Tim was there. It was like, he's in the middle of remodeling his house. He's got years of listening to other people that do this really well to kind of guide and advise. And a really big piece of it is separately, we had about half the contacts we needed to get that job done. So that's how we ended up delegating tasks was like, okay, well, your guy does this. So you manage that project and my guy does this. So I'll manage that project. So you were like doing tile. I was doing electrical. I did roof and AC. You did trim work. Like it was whoever kind of knew the contact or got the number from the friend is the person that kind of ran that. Um, And I think the, the other benefit of it is it was two people doing one person's job, but that job's a full-time job. And we both were still pursuing residential real estate. We still are. So it gave us freedom with that. And then some life seasons that specifically I was in to really be able to delegate some of that out and say, Hey man, I'm really packed for two weeks. Can you kind of take the reins? And we just did a really good job of being flexible saying, Hey, we're even 50, 50, no matter how this ends up and being super chill and flexible and how that really looked. Um, and both like kind of trying to outserve the other person. Like, I don't feel like I'm doing enough. Well, I don't feel like I'm doing enough, um, which is how you should look at marriage. So that's a fantastic analogy yeah. as opposed to like making sure the other person's doing their fair share, just like trying to make sure I'm doing enough, um, to run this kind of how it ended up playing out. So it worked. Um, I do not recommend this structure with this ambiguity <laughs> to anybody else because we're super lucky with the way our personalities mesh and our background together. Um, and just how our like personal lives are kind of tied in there's, there would be like consequence if there was a fallout, I think as well. Um, but we were just so aligned with what the goals were, how we were going to go about doing it. Um, just our thought process on like quality and integrity of the job, like all that stuff, it just happened to align perfectly, which we didn't know it would. Um, and so we're like, well, let's just do it again. But we still had a conversation before this one where Tim was saying, Hey, I got a ton of life stuff going on. If there's another deal that pops up, I might need to take a step back and do either a lower level or nothing. Would you be comfortable taking that on? And I'm going, I don't know, man, maybe. Um, We'll see. So we're able to have that sort of flexibility and conversation where it's also like, hey, if you got to step out for a deal because you got stuff going on, great. See you on the next one. Like, it's not like we dissolve the partnership. Like, let's go do it again. Yep. Did you guys write up a contract, create an LLC, anything like that? Or is it? We wrote up a one page joint venture agreement between us and the private investor that we all signed. Um, I think we are super blessed that all three of us um, are Christians, which happens to also inform our like worldview and value system, um, which we had very candid conversations of like, hey, if this goes south, how does that look as far as relationship wise? Like everybody is on the up and up. We all have our best interests in mind. Let's just put it on paper, very simple, simple bullet points. So we all kind of know what we're supposed to do um, and go from there. Um, we did not form any kind of like an LLC or, or anything for this. There may be benefit to doing that in the future because this second project is with that same investor with the same structure. So if we are going for repeatability and he's interested in doing scaling as well, which I think he is, then there's probably a benefit to it because it got a little messy at the end with trying to disperse funds and stuff on how that went. So. Gotcha. So it's for us, you guys each kind of individually, as far as how big are you looking to grow this as far as with the flip side, because obviously it's, you're both real estate agents, you're doing residential real estate and you're both trying to grow that avenue as well. Is this something where you're trying to grow both avenues at the same time? Is there one that you look at more as, Hey, I see, I see the money's there right now. So I want to jump on that, but residential real estate's my lane and that's where I'm going to stay. Or is this, how do you guys see that playing out? Tim's a better goal setter, so. <laughs> yeah, so I think for me uh, personally, I got my license, and we probably talked about this in our last um, the podcast episode, but um, I got my license originally because I was interested in investing in real estate, um, and I figured that you know, I didn't really have a clear job. I wasn't. I was working at a Starbucks as a barista before that, but um, I, I figured I could get my license, and that'd be a good you know spot to land where I could learn more about real estate. I could talk about it every day. I could be in the market. I could see things. So I figured that would just be really expanding my uh, knowledge from listening to podcasts every day about it and doing a bunch of research on my right. own to like, okay, now I actually work in the field and um, thunder. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so now I actually work in the field. And so like, I feel a little bit more versed in it. 
Um, and so I just finished up my first year kind of in residential real estate, um, enjoyed it, learned a ton and I'm still learning. Um, and I, I still enjoy it, but I do feel like, you know, I tend to lean a little bit more on the investment side, um, and could see that, you know, as paths kind of open up and whatever that kind of ends up looking like, I find myself probably leaning a little bit more towards the investing side continuing on and, you know, still keep, keep in the residential side cause I do enjoy it and it brings a paycheck, you know, obviously. So, yeah. um, but yeah, that's kind of where I land, I think. So I'm very different from Tim in that, um, I found it a good idea for a few reasons. The first of which is it seemed like a profitable project. Um, so it's good to pursue that. It ended up, I think if you calculate like our hourly, <laughs> we basically gave our time away, um, but earned, you know, so much experience with it and now contacts that are incredible. Um, and I actually believe that I became a better agent for my residential clients by building a house from the ground up. Mm-hmm. Um, so you walk into a house, you kind of have x-ray vision, you kind of see what's going on, you can educate. So I think there was a huge, just like intangible benefit with that. Um, but I think investment real estate for me will always be secondary probably, but I kind of look at it as in a way to diversify more in my portfolio. Uh, if I'm all residential real estate all the time, uh, market goes up and down, stuff happens. Yep. <laughs> it seems like every decade. Um, and stuff's crazy right now. So I don't want to have a single source of income that I'm relying on. So having a solid, repeatable, scalable investment side seems just really wise because that's going to make sense in some way or another, no matter what. And I think residential real estate always makes sense no matter what, as long as you're flexible with the market. Um, and I learned that from my original brokerage where they were still doing short sales and foreclosures and stuff in 2012 and 2014 when it was still pretty bad because um, you had to pivot with the market. You didn't have what we have now, which is high equity, highly qualified buyers with great interest rates. And um, it's fantastic for an agent right now. It's, it's easy at least selling a house. So I, I see it as a way to increase overall income, which is generally always a good thing depending on where your time is at, which I feel like we split and delegate that pretty well so that it is manageable. And a way to like, hey, if this like is slow for a season, my residential book of business, then I can just pivot and put more time and energy into this. And I already have a scalable project with people and partners around me. Yeah. One of the, do you guys know where Desert Mountain is in Cape Creek? Mm -hmm. So um, previous job, there is a builder who, uh, they do multi-million dollar house, ground up, all that stuff. So. I forget exactly who it was, if it was an investor or if it was the actual builder company, the general contractor himself. Um, he went through basically when the market crashed and bought a, a whole bunch of lots inside of Desert Mountain. So right now, the dirt is selling for around a million dollars. When he picked them up, he picked them up for like 200 grand. So the difference now compared to then is like obviously $800,000. And so they're throwing everything on pause for that community just because there's an $800,000 difference. You see it just in all over. And it's interesting to see how people ride the waves of, hey, when the market's good, like you throw certain building projects on pause, but even when the market does go south, it's that pivot, like you said, Mm -hmm. that to be able to see, hey, it's, we don't expect this to stay down forever. It'll come right back. So it's understanding where to go with it. So I did want to talk to you guys though, like we are in a time where everything seems to be kind of on the up and up, like they're throwing their stuff on pause. You guys are starting. So what do you guys look for? First of all, in a house, like you're getting into your second one. So what are you looking for as far as metrics, stuff like that to be able to say, Hey, we're going in because it's not necessarily like, Hey, we're going to fix this. We'll flip it. Uh, everything is kind of on the way back up or that we're gonna hold it for several years even, and then sell it for a large profit later. Uh, What makes sense for you guys? I think a high level strategy like that, currently we have one private investor that we work with. He's kind of a captain of that ship on what he wants to do with his money. And right now that short term fix and flip is making sense for him. Um, he's also pursuing another type of opportunity as well that we'll see if it works out. 
Um, as far as us making those decisions, I think it's driven by where we can get the money right now. Having done one project has opened up opportunities for us to get money from other places and other investors. But right now we're really more of an executor for that investor as opposed to like a vision caster, um, where I would say Tim and I are both individually in the process of like raising and saving our own capital to be able to go and do that on our own. Um, so we don't have a lot of freedom to think through that. We could present different opportunities as far as how we look to each project to know if that makes sense. Um, we just have like a shareable spreadsheet we work through together, um, that we've tweaked on. And now that we have one like finished project, it's really easy to work off of that. Like, well, here's what this was last time. Here's a square footage difference. Here's what will be different here. We never really get set of numbers. We were shooting in the dark last time. We were trying to do rehab numbers. I'm like Googling how much a garage door costs. Cause I don't know how much it costs to install a garage door. Cause that's about 1200 bucks. So just having a really good idea cost now super helps, but um, yeah, still the investor has a big say on where these properties are as well and his favorite zip codes and stuff that he will not touch and doesn't like. So everything like we're, we're finding the opportunity most of the time presenting it in a way that's very numbers driven as well as the other stuff that he's going to look for and seeing if it makes sense. At this point, we have not really pursued any sort of multiple project. Um, we would probably need another investor to do that. Um, and we are kind of developing relationships, I would say right now in that. And it's really nice to have one in your portfolio already that you can point towards. Yeah. Yeah, to circle back to, again, what you mentioned of, like you knew the price of how what it costs to install a garage door. I found that to be extremely beneficial. Maybe it's not beneficial, like in terms of like, can I convince someone to, you know, I don't know, make a make a decision to purchase a house. That's that's doesn't doesn't necessarily affect that. But um, in being able to walk through a house with a client on the residential side and then look at the kitchen and say, man, this needs a full new upgrade. Like, and, yep. and for me to go ahead and say, okay, well, one, I have the contacts that you could use to do this, mm -hmm. and then two. Here's how much, you know, depending on the type of client they are, here's how much I think it might cost to do it yourself. Here's how much it would cost to probably have somebody to do it. Um, and to have that kind of like knowledge um, really drives like the comfort home to a client on the residential side. They're like, oh man, I'm in, I'm in sweet hands right now. Cause like, and then you're just telling them you're being the expert on pretty much everything. Mm -hmm. you, know? you become the guy. Exactly. Or at least the guy that's got all the guys. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yep. yeah. Nice. So I want to ask you guys, the market's crazy right now. Everyone asks you all the time to uh, be a palm reader, fortune teller, and tell them what's going to happen next. So I'll ask you the same question. Um, pull out your crystal balls. What are we looking at here in the future? Um, or what do you guys just see right now? Because I want to hear Tim's elevator speech on this, and <laughs> this I'll, I have my thoughts on it as well. So I want to see how it compares, but right. I refuse to be swayed by Tim. Yeah. So like I said, getting into real estate, I was like coming from the investing side more so, or at least the thoughts of the investing side. Yeah. So for me, I'm I like in the investing circles and basically everyone's more like a little doom and gloom in that, in those circles. <laughs> so they're like, I'm hoping for a crash. It's going to crash tomorrow. Really hoping for that. Um, Cause they're all looking to get a sweet deal. Right. Um, the more I think, you know, in coming to, to Phoenix and learning about the Phoenix market in the last year of dealing with residential real estate, my, my view has shifted and I, and I've begun to like kind of form my own opinion, I think on that, um, and take kind of almost a combination of both. Right. And so based on where I think the market is headed, um, you know, on statistics of growth in Maricopa County, on how many people are coming here a day, um, the job opportunities for people, the amount of those things kind of in, in conjunction with each other. Uh, I don't know that, you know, obviously the, the U.S. is putting band-aids on like every leaking hole in the ship right now. Um, and that's very clear. Everyone kind of is like aware of that. So whenever the, <laughs> the boat decides to split in half, or whatever that's going to look like, wherever it might be in student loans and in the housing market, we don't know, right? Right. But um, I, I think that there are going to be specific areas in the U.S. that will have 
that effect mitigated a little bit by the growth that they're seeing. And I think Maricopa County is one of those places. Um, enough people are moving here and, and we're seeing like a very high demand with that low inventory. We literally can't keep up on the rent side or the buy side. Um, and so I, I do think that our market's going to continue to climb. And this is what I'm telling the clients is uh, I think that we're going to end up meeting or at least continuing to chase those markets like Denver, like California, like, you know, Texas, we're beginning to kind of raise the level of our real estate up to those. And it's not like we're already the highest in the country as far as like priced, you know, real estate. Yep. There's lots of room to still go up. So I think that that will continue to see that. And that, I'm curious what Nick has to say about it too. I mostly agree with everything you said. How I kind of give my, what I'm going to call the elevator speech is, um, I had this conversation four hours ago. I said, hey, we want to sell and buy our dream home, uh, but we want to sell at the highest possible and maybe buy when stuff drops back down. I'm like, you and everyone else. Uh, how long are you willing to wait? They're like, not more than a year. I said, okay, then there's no point in trying to make that play. Um, so the right now in Phoenix is, like Tim said, driven by a couple different factors. Uh, population growth, about 20% in the last five years, which is insane, absolutely insane. Um, low interest rates, which is due to a ton of factors. I think a big influencer on that is the Fed setting the base rate. Super, super low. Um, that's only committed through the end of this year. So I think we're going to see an interest rate bump back up probably January 2022. Um, Real quickly. Will, yeah. So we'll put it on the record. Nick Carlisle says <laughs> things are drastically going to change 2022, January 1. I think uh, it'll noticeably change, at least in your interest rate. No, that's, that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for <laughs> okay. Chris. He said it. You're holding the crystal. You put whatever <laughs> clip that you want on that. I'll yeah. sign off on it. That's fine. The Facebook clip is going to be Nick Carlisle predicts huge crash in Arizona <laughs> 2022. 2022. Yeah. Get out now. Um, all of our friends and family. Perfect. <laughs> so, I mean, interesting. So, I heard from uh, a high level gal at a mortgage. I almost want to call it a dealership because it's just a huge company. Um, that basically said, look, the cheapest, the lowest interest rate we can give away to make our money back plus 50 bucks is like 2.3% or something. And she's like, right now she's buying a home, which is what I'm talking to her. It's like, I'm pre-approved at like 2.6%, which I had to fight to get. Like she had to kind of work up the ladder. So people are waiting for like a better rate and there will never be a better rate just because of how the overhead of that bank works, right? Maybe you can squeeze a deal out from somewhere else or you can get a 10 year loan or something like that and drop under that. But like, if you can buy a house right now for 2.7, 2.8% interest, like you should be doing something in real estate, whether at minimum refinancing, yeah, absolute minimum, <laughs> you should be refinancing if you're not gonna move. If you are gonna move, you might as well move when the prices are what they are. We'll probably go up through the rest of the year by another 10 to who knows, 13, 15% at this rate. Mm -hmm. um, but we also just have a very realistic mindset that what it is right now is unsustainable. This cannot continue for five years because then the entry level house will be $500,000. Yep. And Arizona does not have the wages to support that. No, we just don't. Um, so we can see that we can't keep up. We can see that 12.6% equity for Maricopa County last year is insane. More than double a good historical equity rate for real estate is four to six percent typically. So we know it's not going to continue. Is there a bubble? Here's your clickbait. Absolutely not. There is zero bubble. Our market is driven very clearly by supply and demand functions. The buyers that are purchasing homes are the most qualified buyers, I would argue, to almost ever purchase homes, especially in this state for since, I don't know, the 70s and 80s when you had to have 20% down. Um, I mean, I'm seeing people come in with $100,000 down, 20% down, 800 credit score, equity from another home, like just monster buyers. And that's even almost if, what it takes to Even if it does. I have a $250,000 buyer right now that has 20% down, saved up. And we're still not winning because other people have cash. Yeah. It's insane, right? So the people that are buying homes can't afford to buy those homes and they're not going to default. And it's, if it does crash, it, it cannot be the same function as it was the last time. 
we have too much oversight and the buyers are too high quality. Um, as for a year out, anything over a year, a prediction over a year, I argue is crystal ball. I don't think anybody can predict real estate market anywhere to any degree of certainty past one year. Within one year, I think you can be fairly, not certain, but you can, you can give a direction at least of what's gonna happen. Um, so I think if you're gonna do something sooner rather than later, if it's at least a three to five year decision, if you're not, if you want to wait at least two years to jump in the market, then I have no idea what's going to happen at that point. There's too many factors. So we'll know in a year. Yeah. <laughs> so check back. Other people will know and I will believe them. <laughs> yeah. So when you guys are dealing with people who have the higher amount of equity that they're going in with for a house, is this a lot of out of state people? Is it out of state money that's coming in? Is this just people are saving their money because they know what they need to do to get a house? Is this a lot of investors who are saying, hey, we understand that the housing market and the rental market is going nuts, so let's jump in, buy up a ton of houses. They have the liquidity behind them to be able to do that. Is What are you guys seeing out of those three? Is it a combination or? <laughs> was our buyer on the flip, the first flip, was that a, a Cali buyer? I can't remember. Um, one of the offers was. Okay. okay. Yeah. I don't know, I just changed just get well all the way down. Well, besides the third time that I pulled it. But. Gives a new meaning to airdrop. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, I guess the question was, are most people coming in from like out of state? Or are they out of state? Do we have investors who see the potential in the rental market in Arizona just because everything is going so nuts, so it's kind of a compounding effect? Or is it that the consumer is coming in with more equity and better prepared overall? Um, I'll take a stab at that first. Uh, pretty much everything. Yeah, I, I'm working with a Cali buyer right now. Um, well qualified. I have an investor looking to invest in Maricopa County from out of state because he believes in the growth. And I'm currently, or I just closed a house um, with a retired couple just looking to downsize, but they were well, well qualified and basically able to buy cash at that point because they had a nest egg. So pretty much everything is like, You've got people coming in from out of state, people wanting to invest, and then also well, well qualified buyers who have held onto their home for 20 years or 30 years, maybe just have it paid off and are looking to just go ahead and just take their equity now and from that house and put it into something nicer quality. Yep, agreed. It's everything. When you have a market like this, it motivates everyone because it makes sense for everybody to move just about. Um, and there's specific situations out of that. But yeah, everything just pulls an out of state buyer purchasing cash have a, a first time buyer that has a $100,000 down payment. Some of it inherited, some of it investments, just really smart decisions. Um, I would say majority for me, and this may as well be my demographic, which is 30-ish year old families, um, where they bought their first home three to five years ago, and the market has done nothing but go up. So even if they've done nothing to their home, they have 50 grand in equity that's a 20% down payment or 10% down payment on their potential dream home that they can then lock in at 3% for 30 years and die there if they want to, right? So it motivates everybody to move, um, including the well-qualified people. Um, And I think the reason, one of the reasons we see a lot higher ratio of well-qualified buyers is this market does not work for a low-qualified buyer that needs a down payment assistance that has really low down payment funds to begin with, has a lower credit score, that doesn't have a lot of assets. All of those things are part of your overall buyer profile. And I have not written an offer on a home that did not have other offers in the last year. Not one single home have I written an offer that didn't have at least one other offer that ended up competing with us. Most of them five to 10. So if you have your pick of buyers, four of them are strong and one is weak, then the seller's gonna make a decision that reflects that. So I have counseled people and said, look, it doesn't make sense for you right now. We either need to change your financial situation or we need to wait, or most of the time it's both because it takes time to fix your financial situation um, or find some sort of creative route to figure out a solution that's gonna work for them. So I think that's why most of the buyers we see are well qualified because you shouldn't get in this market if you can't compete with it, it's going to be a waste of your time and resources. So yeah. we need to look at alternatives in there. And, and what we mean by well-qualified is basically overly qualified. Like mm. it's, it's that tough conversation right now as if you're, when you're talking to a family and they're wanting to capitalize on what the market shows them, 
right? Um, and they can qualify to buy a house. They're not underqualified to buy right. a house, um, but they just don't have enough to really fight against other offers is what it, what it comes down to. So that's always a tough conversation having with buyers and, and mm-hmm. people who are great people and they just aren't quite there, can't compete with a cash offer, 20% down kind of thing. So Gotcha. And I don't want to discourage too many people if you're in that situation. <laughs> so I'll give a story to counter that a little bit. Um, and this may sound confusing, but it is what it is. Uh, I had a buyer who what had his own down payment, could pay his own closing costs, um, qualified up to 300000 Problem is he wanted to buy in the East Valley. And the East Valley is about 30% more competitive than the West Valley um, to an insane degree, $30,000, $40,000 over list price for a 260 home. So he's qualified up to 300. He could buy for more, but that's his cap. So I want three. So we're writing offers at 260, 265 homes, and we're maxing out his pre-approval um, to try to get homes. We wrote 10 offers and did not get a house. So I said, hey, look, the offers we're losing to have appraisal waivers. They're limited appraisal waivers, but they're three to five thousand dollars that the buyer will agree to pay over the appraisal value, which just takes extra cash to do that. He does not have that cash. That is not his financial reality. So about eight offers in, I said, look, dude, you can rent for another year and save up more cash, but it's going to be more expensive. So really, you're just going to be chasing your down payment and it's not going to be a ratio that works for you. Or we can keep writing offers and I will write in an appraisal waiver for you in certain situations that make sense and I'll agree to cover it if it comes up. Um, we got house number 11 last weekend, finally, with a $4,000 appraisal waiver in it. Um, so it takes what it takes in certain situations. We can figure it out, but it's also not a reality for me to be able to do that on every deal. It was a unique situation that it did make sense for him and for me. So don't expect that from your agent. Um, but just to say as well that uh, every challenge does have a solution somewhere. So. So, and then as far as an appraisal waiver, it's, if I understand correctly, a lot of deals, people will go in and they'll make an offer. If that gets accepted, there's still an appraisal that's done. And if the house appraises for less than that offer, that uh, price comes down or the money comes down, or am I misunderstanding that? You're real close. So whenever you're getting a loan to purchase a home, the lender requires an appraisal. And that appraisal is there to make sure that that buyer is not over borrowing to purchase that piece of basically collateral because that's what the loan is weighted against, right? Is the right. value okay. of the home. So worst case scenario, which is what the lender always thinks through, if they don't pay this mortgage, I get the house. I have to sell the house to recoup the mortgage. Yep. Is that gonna sell for enough to cover it? So if you offer $300,000 for a home and it appraises at 290, the lender says, I will give you a loan based on a purchase price of 290. And if you want to pay more than that, that's you out of pocket. That's your problem, right? So typically there can be a renegotiating period there, but because this market is moving so quickly, appraisals and appraisers do not analyze markets within 30 day timeframes. They analyze over six months and six months was 6% equity ago. So you do not have closed comps that support what the market says this home is worth because I have 12 offers and none of them are lower than list price. So the appraisal waiver is a way for the buyer to say, look, I love this home. I'm willing to pay more than what an appraiser says it's worth out of my own pocket because I like the home so much and probably because it makes sense because of our current equity trajectory and for whatever that situation makes sense for. So that is very common. And I would say 50 to 60% of the offers I see getting accepted have appraisal waivers right now, which is insane. And it's another reason why this market is not sustainable because the appraisal process is there to protect consumers as well as lenders. And currently, at least half of the consumers that I see are waiving that protection, intentionally paying additional money to ignore what an independent third party says the home is worth. And likely not ignore, but us as agents are also saying, I had this conversation today where they listed at 275, we wrote an offer at 285, and they basically countered us kind of at 290. And we already had a $5,000 appraisal waiver. And I'm like, look, guys, it's not going to appraise at 290. It's going to appraise at 280. You should expect to pay that full $5,000 appraisal waiver. Do you like the house enough to do that? Does that make sense for your long-term plans? We have to talk about this. And they said, yes, so we accepted it. But that's not going to make sense in every situation. People will try to get you to pay too much for their home, and it will not make sense. 
So again, it's going to be case by case. It's going to be individual. But yes, yeah, it's essentially what an appraisal labor is and why you use it. Gotcha. So you guys have talked about inventory, how competitive everything is. Um, something I kind of struggled understanding was I started probably back in August looking at the numbers as far as the inventory in 2020 compared to 2019. And as far as I saw, I was like, all right, there's a difference, but it seemed almost negligible. So even end of year stats, it seemed that there was, I believe, a 2000 uh, home difference or listing difference lower in 2020, but there is 2000 more that were sold. Uh, that's 2020 compared to 2019. So as far as when everyone's talking about inventory is low right now, what do you guys mean by that exactly? The uh, demand is higher than the supply, basically. So, so and let me get those, I want to get those numbers straight. So you're saying there was 2000 less homes available for sale in 2020 than 2019. Yes. But there was an increased number of sales to match the yes. listings basically. Yes. Right. So I think that kind of proves your point is, or maybe my point that there was more inventory and they all sold. We saw more transactions in 2020 than like the last six years. Mm -hmm. So total transactions, but we did that with less standing inventory, right? So okay. we have sales and then we have homes that sit on the market. And I think we have a, uh, it's, it's what a monthly supply. So basically if no new homes were listed, they just stopped today. How long would it take for all the current homes to go away? And it's like 1.2 months. All right. A typical, um, like monthly supply would be like four to six months. Like if no new inventory entered the market, it take at least four months to completely evaporate what's already here. So you're seeing more homes be listed, but you're seeing a higher number of sales as well. So if we have more homes listed, but we have even more sales than that, that reduces our standing inventory slowly, but surely. So a while back, I heard this stat, um, might even have been from Adam that like, based on the Maricopa County population and like number of qualified buyers, a neutral market of inventory would be about 25,000 to 30,000 of like standing inventory homes. So like homes that are not closed, but that are somewhere in the market, either active, pending, under contract, somewhere in there. Um, currently our standing inventory is like right around five or 6,000. So we maybe have 20% of available homes that we should for the amount of people that would like to buy those homes. And that's pretty proven in our practice saying, well, if there's 20% less homes, that means we have one home for every five people that want to buy them. And every home I write an offer in has five other offers. So that makes a whole lot of sense. So then we see discouraged and disgruntled buyers where it takes three months and 10 offers to actually land one of the homes because you're competing with so many other people. So that's kind of where that inventory number comes from. We have like, we have plenty of homes being listed, but we have way too many buyers coming in to then just soak all that up immediately. Yeah, gotcha. So one of the roles I wanted to kind of ask you about is in the midst of all this madness, you guys in some ways play a counselor role as far as I'd say financially, mostly because people are dealing with a huge financial purchase. So how do you guys approach that? Obviously it'll change on an individual basis, but it's when people ask you, like I did earlier in the stupid way, but as far as with the crystal ball situation, mm -hmm. say like, Hey, like, what should we do? How do like, they're laying it out there for you guys. It's going to be the largest financial purchase of their life possibly. And how do you guys walk in with a mindset for that? Yeah. So everyone in their dog is probably going to scream at someone and tell them to buy right now, just because of just kind of external things going on, right? Yep. Low interest rates, everything like that. So, um, but just recently I've turned four buyers down for making that purchase decision based on their long-term and short-term goals and their current financial situation. Um, whether that's they purely can't kind of thing or it's unwise to do so. Um, whether they own a home right now and it's, should I sell my house or should I refi? Well, this, not every answer is a cookie, a cookie cutter answer, right? So like not every person can just say, it's the same answer for everyone. Um, it's based on what their goals are and what those look like, how much debt they have, how much 
you know, income they're bringing in, a lot of things kind of go in that decision. And so for clients, the conversation is never weighted, honestly, by what the market is doing fully. Um, it really starts with asking the client some of those upfront questions. What are your goals? Where are you financially? Where do you want to be in three years? Where do you want to be next year? Um, that kind of thing. And, and it never comes down to, okay, can I talk them into selling or buying a house so I can get this commission to feed my family? It's like, what is the best financial decision for that and for them? And I think as a business standpoint, if we're talking to like other realtors or other people, you know, just in general business for how you treat a customer or a client, um, that comes back. And I, and I just talked to the, uh, a lender of mine who has this exact same process and how he deals with people as well. Um, this comes back to pay you in tenfold, right? Because the moment you can turn down someone and technically take money out of your own pocket or potential money is what that looks like for the betterment of them and their goals, um, that allows you to then open up this entire new box of trust with them and anyone they know, basically, is what it really comes down to. Um, and so luckily that has not been formulated by myself and luckily I have people around me to tell me how to do that and why to do this and you know how to treat clients and customers and it's it's been a culmination of every person that I kind of come into contact and do business with and I've been lucky to run into those people to this point um, and so I mean I'm sure because right there on the same board is is uh, how to approach that so I'm with you in where we're both at right now um, I had a very different upbringing in real estate because that first company that I worked at was very sales oriented, was very bottom line oriented, was very numbers oriented, we'll say. Um, and it, it drove me to actually leave the company essentially because I felt like um, people were kind of on a conveyor belt and we were trying to get as much out of them as we could, as quickly as we could, and then almost discard them. And I worked for that company for three years we had one repeat client that I had touched in three years. I mean, people aren't having a good experience, right? You're making maybe a little more each deal. And Nick was getting useless, right? <laughs> so a big turning point for me was we had this, um, we'd set the appointment. And once I was licensed, I would run that appointment. And we'd have this uh, agreement that we'd walk through with them. And the goals of that agreement were twofold, threefold. Get them to commit to using us with like a buyer broker exclusive employment agreement, uh, collect a retainer fee up to $500, and get them to agree in writing that you would be paid a commission of at least three and a half percent, which at the time, and as far as I know, has never really been offered from the other side of a brokerage. So they're basically saying, hey, I want you as a purchasing client that typically wouldn't pay directly for a realtor out of pocket to agree to pay directly out of pocket. Um, because, and there's all these justifications on like, we work harder than other agents, which I would argue was true. Um, and you have to believe like you're valuable enough maybe to go and get that. But I never felt great about it. And I had a guy close and his like aunt was a real estate agent and looked through the settlement statement to see that we were basically paid directly from him. And so he calls me up and just chews me out for, I mean, a good 10 minutes. And I'm a, I'm a younger guy at that point, so I'm 21, maybe 22 at the time, uh, still kind of developing phone skills, and I'm like uh, physically shaking on the other end of the phone, like getting screamed at basically, trying to like validate, like doing all the phrases they told me to say to like, like it's already close, we have our money, right? But he's just mad, he feels lied to and taken advantage of, because he probably was, I would argue. Um, end up escalating to like the owner and they get it figured out. But I just like am breathing after that call set on the back down going, I don't want to do work that makes people feel like that. Um, and so that kind of took me on a journey to where then I, I went to the next team that I think treated people a lot better and treated people as people, um, but still didn't like align a hundred percent. And I was kind of searching through that on my own. And I think uh, a perfect example is like when I sit down for like a consultation with somebody she's like hey can we grab a copy like i have questions or like hey i really want to buy a house like the first question out of my mouth when we sit down is why are you looking to move or buy a house or sell a home like i want to know the why first i need context i need to ask good questions i want to see the bigger picture let's take a zoom out 
Otherwise, I can't advise properly. I can run a comp all day and tell you what to offer, and I can win in a marketing strategy and in competitive offer situations. But having the context for that client is so important because we do need to be able to say no or say, well, what about this over here? Or, hey, let's come back in two years and look at this. Um, and I've even had people say, man, I'm really sorry I wasted your time. I'm like, hey, man, you didn't waste my time. I'm investing in this relationship. And I'm going to do real estate probably until I die because I love this job so much. So I do not care if you buy tomorrow or in five years. It does not make a difference to me. I want it to be the right choice for you. And that has fueled my current ability to have to do zero marketing other than maybe some basic social media presence stuff because that client felt taken care of, was genuinely taken care of, their best interests were looked out for above my own. And just like Tim said, that comes back around to you. And as you create a business that's based on that character and that integrity, people love that. And they tell everybody about that. And if they even hear their coworker down the aisle in another cubicle saying, I'm thinking about buying a house, they're right there giving out your business card or giving your phone number. And that's been incredible to see just like work on its own where like I can just be myself and love people and do a job that I'm good at and just watch like business come through and then just keep doing that. And it's yep. incredible. Which to me, it's always funny when people take the Wolf of Wall Street approach yeah. where you're in that boiler room, you're on the phone and it's, you got to sell them some pipe dream or it's Dude, the, we the watched pressure. Glenn long. Gary, Glenn Ross, which is a famous like sales movie about getting phone leads and making that as like a pump up to then go to the bullpen and make my calls and like convince people to meet agents that were gonna upsell them and try to charge some money up front and just be like. Did they have hookers and cocaine though? No, thank goodness. <laughs> uh, they were all married, it was great. So, yeah, the culture was still not quite there, but uh, it wasn't that bad. Yeah, didn't do Quaaludes. Yeah, it's a drug of choice of Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. Not that I've ever seen that movie, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Too much debauchery. <laughs> um, one of my pet peeves is Zillow. I've talked to you guys both about this. Um, recently, I feel like I've seen one of the shortcomings of Zillow. Uh, and that's with the listings that they carry on there. So it seems that like you guys have said, there's a very aggressive market with people trying to pick up houses. Um, but Zillow hasn't been able to necessarily keep up with that. Can you guys explain why that is and the advantage you guys have over Zillow uh, when people are looking at houses on the market? Is it, is that, Nick, is that intentional, do you think? So to clarify your question, <laughs> when you say listings that they carry, are these listings advertised through Zillow that they just pulled from the MLS or is this a Zillow owned listing? Uh, just once that they pulled from the MLS. Okay. Gotcha. Now I've got questions about the other. <laughs> we'll get to that next. We can get to iBuyers if you want. Um, it is intentional from Zillow. <laughs> Zillow is a lead generation platform. That's its goal. It's a marketing platform. It's there to support Zillow. It's there to support Zillow Premier Agents that pay them money to get leads and uh, they have a pretty successful lead generation program. The more homes you can say are for sale and available, the more calls and leads you will generate. So it absolutely makes sense for them to do that. Um, in, the, in the fast moving market that we have, it is becoming more and more obsolete and I think they may have to look at making an adjustment there because I pretty much have to tell every client that please do not send me homes from Zillow because it is not going to be up to date please use the MLS directly or maybe one of these competitors that tend to be more accurate because if I don't say anything, I will get three to four homes a day from that client. What about this one? What about this one? What about this one? And everyone I will go through and screenshot that it was under contract three weeks ago instead of them, this is not available. Um, so I think it is a problem on the consumer side that Zillow is doing what's best for Zillow and the agents that they support. So I can't fault them for it, but it definitely is a weakness and is why I end up steering a lot of clients away from that for that specific resource. What can you guys do with the MLS that is different than what Zillow does? I mean, it, it does basically the same thing. You can set up a custom search, probably a little bit more in depth and more detailed on the MLS. Um, and then obviously it's, it's real time. The biggest thing I think that you would be able to see is those, you know, coming soon listings, which in our market is one of the most competitive things that 
we as agents, I guess, have in our tool belt. There's um, probably 10 to 20% of coming soon listings do not hit the market as active because they accept an offer before they ever do that. So if you're not seeing those, you're missing out on potentially 10% of the homes you could be buying. Right. Okay. So is there a way that Zillow can shore that weakness up or is basically are people holding down that lock on the MLS? That's a decision that for Flex MLS, which is the Arizona Regional MLS kind of branding. Uh, if they will distribute that information to Zillow, because right now the MLS basically sells that information to anybody that wants it for at least active or other status listings. They've not chosen to do that for coming soon. They don't distribute that yet. Uh, it's not a control that us as agents have. That would be like the board, basically, um, which supposedly we have influence on, but not really. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then I buyers. <laughs> you got this. Yeah. yeah. Keep so I, so buyer is a fun little colloquial term that describes what started out as, I mean, kind of the flagship for this was Open Door that came out of California, which was essentially a privately funded hedge fund, for lack of a better word, that just wanted to buy a bunch of real estate up for a discount. And they basically figured out a way to modernize wholesaling is really all it is. Um, and they have really good branding and they have really good marketing and their process can make sense for some people where you basically say, I will sell direct to you, a cash investor for a understood discount or service fee. And then they're just going to turn around and resell that home at a fair market value, potentially doing some cosmetic work in between. It's basically the shell of that. Um, the benefits to the seller are typically convenience, the surety of a cash buyer, flexible closing dates, and now they've started to tie in a ton of other benefits as well, like moving companies and a whole bunch of stuff. So it can make sense for some people, most people that cost way too much money to make any kind of sense, um, but they've still seen success. They hit the big pause button uh, through 2020, largely due to COVID, um, but even still, um, there's a lot of the doom and gloom and investment and agent world where they're stealing all of our business and they're competing against us. And the reality is at its best year, which was 2019, I buyers were 2% of the real estate market in Maricopa County last year, they were 1.2%. So they're probably going to amp up a little bit again this year. So maybe be one and a half, maybe come back up to two. Um, but I, I always tell other agents that I'm not competing for that client typically. If that makes sense for that client and it's my client, they have referral programs. So I've referred people to open door and offer pad, um, collect a referral fee because that process made sense for them and then we help them on the buy side, you know? So it makes sense for some people, but even left to their own devices, they're going to get 2% of the market. It's 98% for the rest of us. So it's cool. can be utilized for unique situations for sure, but it's basically nicely flagged and marketed wholesaling. Cool. So we say, come at us, bro. <laughs> all right well we've crossed about an hour uh so i want to say thank you guys for joining me for this before we go did this these questions with tim so i've got some rapid questions just to throw your way cool usually i send these to people but you get real rapid <laughs> questions rapid. oh yeah i love it i was gonna say i prepped for, for these ones last time <laughs> yeah so uh what's been the most impactful book on your life and we'll say besides the bible Oh, you took, you took the easy one away. Yep. All right. It's rapid fire, so I have to answer quickly, but I'm going to stall for time by continuing to talk. Um, <laughs> gosh. That's the problem when you've read so many great books. Of course. So many. <laughs> True. Or Back when you've listened January. to yep. so many Audible books in the last <laughs> week. I went through seven. <laughs> so um, this is professional or personal. Oh, yeah. Either one. Okay, so the easier answer is personal, so that's perfect for me. Uh, Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller, which read multiple times, and in my opinion, is pretty unbeatable as far as like a catch-all for dating and marriage book that has largely shaped my going on four-year marriage. Favorite movie? This is, <laughs> and I really... I just like favorite questions a lot because it narrows me down so much. I have like favorite in different categories. 
Um, Last podcast I had, the guy laid it out by genre. He's like, we're going to go Good for him. here, here, here. And he's like, I'm not choosing one. I don't care. I'm like, All right. <laughs> um, I'm just going to go with my like general catch-all would watch it over and over the most, which is 100% a cliche and is Shawshank Redemption. It's also arguably the highest critically acclaimed movie of all time. So I guess I have the taste of a movie critic. Worst comic book movie. Worst comic book movie has to be. Should I say it? <laughs> Catch a lot of haters. It's Batman vs Superman. Yeah, that's generally. I think yeah, most people actually agree with you, or at least have that on the level of. Second. Well, great. <laughs> a lot of people hated Ben Affleck as Batman. I thought he did a good job, but anyways. <laughs> Uh, any books or podcasts that you are reading or listening to currently? Yes, I have a pretty large queue. Obviously, in real estate, I do a lot of driving. So Audible and podcasts are absolutely my best friends. Um, a podcast that I tend to frequent a lot right now, um, which <laughs> will device people, I'm sure, is a political podcast um, that I enjoy the commentary on. It is... I guess in our terminology would be a left-leaning podcast. It's a slate political podcast, but I really appreciate the discourse that it has, and they really do a good job about keeping up to date with what's going on without being, I mean, they're slanted for sure, but it's easy to see through. They're not trying to pass it off like they're neutral, which I appreciate. Yep. Um, and then I'm finishing up a, a book series as well, an 11-book high fantasy novel series from the 90s, which is um, called The Sword of Truth Saga. So I'm on book 11 right now. I expected nothing less. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then for each of you, what's the best way to get in contact with you or follow what you guys are working on? Yeah, I do a fair amount of social media. Um, so Nick Carlisle on Instagram and Facebook would be a way to do that. You'll see my face there. It's the best looking headshot for Nick Carlisle. So easy to spot. <laughs> Yeah, mine is the most generic name, AZ Tim Johnson. So at least I'm narrowed down to Arizona Tim Johnson. So you can sort through uh, Facebook. That was for smart. That, sure, so. I, I had to do the same thing. AZ Thaddeus. No, I'm yeah. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Yeah. <laughs> just doing everything that he's doing. I just wear one shirt behind for a day. <laughs> Thanks again, guys. That's all we have for today. But before we leave, if you enjoyed the episode, I would appreciate if you subscribe, tell a friend. And until next time, I hope your hammer stays accurate, your Wi-Fi fast, and your work blessed. See you, everybody.